John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hello, the Cinephile fans. This is John Roca. Well, if you've enjoyed our three-part series of The Godfather, and if you haven't listened to it yet, please do yourself a favor and go back and listen to all three parts. Steve Morris and I are back this week with our first part uh, of a breakdown and analysis of The Godfather Part 2. At this point, as we're recording it, we have no idea how many parts this movie is going to be, but we know that we enjoy the and it's one of our favorites and certainly for me it's in my top five at times top three films ever made the godfather part two from 1974 directed by francis ford coppola this continues the corleone saga and and certainly an incredible job by francis ford coppola to tell two stories mirrored throughout the movie the rise of michael corleone and his ascension into the rank of being the godfather and what he does from this point forward to become legitimate, quote-unquote, in the eyes of uh, America, and how the rise of Don Vito Corleone happened from child into his 20s, into where he becomes the Don uh, there in New York. So an incredible film highlighting two phenomenal actors, two legendary actors in Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Of course, the film stars so many more of your favorite actors uh, within it. Of course, Diane Keaton, Robert Duvall, John Cazale, Talia Shire, Lee Strasberg, Michael V. Gazzo, G.D. Spradlin, even features some uh, uh, character actors like the late, great Bruno Kirby. And of course, this film received so many Academy Award nominations, uh, including Best Picture, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Robert De Niro, Best Director for Francis Ford Coppola, Best Writing for Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Music, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Michael V. Gazzo, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Lee Strasberg, Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Talia Shire, Best Costume Design for Theodora Van Runkel, and of course, when I said Best Actor, I meant Al Pacino. Judging from the compliments and the incredibly kind words you all left us after Godfather Part 1, we think you're going to be even more proud of what we do with and how we break down Godfather Part 2. So sit back. Relax and enjoy that this Friday on The Cinephiles. And don't forget, uh, for those of you who are patrons of The Cinephiles, our next Cinephiles short is coming up. And it will be Steve and I talking about our favorite places to travel 
in the world and favorite experiences we had during those travels in the world. So don't miss out on that. If you want to join the Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash the cinephiles and take a look at, at that C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. And also if you want to buy any of the movies or even download uh, or even listen to the episodes rather from our website, you can do so at www.cine-files.net. C-I-N-E-files.net. All right, enough for me to get you excited for what's coming up this Friday. Part one of our breakdown and analysis of The Godfather, part two on The Cinephiles. Connie, if you don't listen to me, marry this man. You'll disappoint me. Hello and welcome to The Cinephiles, where we are continuing not our month of Coppola, but our months of Coppola and The Godfather. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Rook. I'm a writer, producer, and host over on The Outlaw Nation and a voiceover artist as well. And excited, Steve, and wondering how many parts we're going to be get, uh, getting out of this almost three and a half hour movie the Godfather Part Two, which I consider to be my favorite of the two films, uh, and rewatching it for this podcast, I'm even more convinced that it is. So uh, <laughs> I don't know how many parts this is going to be either. Here's what I'll <laughs> tell you: is in general, I usually have around. I know it sounds crazy, but 20 pages of notes for a cinephiles episode, and, <laughs> and that is, you know, part of it is because I'm I write down a lot of the dialogue so that sure. I can, you know, reference it, even though I'm not. We're not going to hear me say it frequently will cut to it but right. and i have to keep the stuff in order and then there's also all sorts of facts and things like that i include sure. any guesses as to how many pages my notes for the godfather part two is i'm gonna say 47 53 oh so close 53, 53 pages Woo. of notes that's what i have here there's a there's one genuine rabbit hole i went down which you'll get to <laughs> probably in part three or something but it was okay. really interesting so i kept doing more research um i asked you this question when we started on godfather one yeah you know which one did you prefer and you did say two and i said we're i'm gonna ask you this again after we're at the very end to see how our opinions have changed mm -hmm. my favorite has always been one but i have to tell you watching godfather two this time yeah it rocked me i mean like emo i was emotionally wrecked mm -hmm. Like, I'd still rather, rather watch Godfather 1, but man, yeah. I, there was a lot that just hit me really, really hard this time. Yeah, agreed. It's such an incredible story. And of course, we're going to tackle it uh, as the original cut. I know there are other cuts where it goes chronologically, but we're tackling the original cut of the film, not the extra cut of the film or what have you. This is the original cut. And you're seeing two uh, stories juxtaposed against each other. And I wonder if it's been a while, Steve, since you've seen this one, because there's a lot of dad aspects to this one, father-son aspects to this with uh, Michael Corleone as the dad to his son and Vito as the dad to Sonny and Michael and, and Fredo uh, and Connie uh, in their storylines juxtaposed. And this idea of achieving something, doing something in this world and of course you've spoken to me before on the show many times about your um uh you know your, the generations before of immigrants who came to this country and so there's a connection to that as well and certainly in the ellis island scene so there's so much here and maybe as you've gotten older maybe there's other things that are speaking to you as you're watching this 
as well than it did before. And that's what happens with great movies, man. Absolutely. Well, I think the last time I watched it was maybe five years ago. Oh, okay. Um, the, uh, the first time I watched it, and I think I mentioned this when we were talking about Coppola, mm. I think the first time I saw it was that chronological version on TV. Right. That's how I first experienced it. And it wasn't until maybe college that I actually sat and watched the whole thing. And mm. I think the chronological version is a, I won't say it's a travesty. Oh, it's still great performances. It's still beautifully sure, sure. shot. It's still great script, but it ain't as good. No, it's a fun way to experience the trilogy. Trilogy, or not, I would say the two films, first two films, if you want to, right? If you want to. Uh, but always see them as they were originally intended for you to see them. Then watch that chronological, because it'll ruin it for you if you don't. It'll absolutely, you won't feel the magic at the same level that you do when you see the original cuts of these first two movies in the series. Do you remember how you first came to it? Yeah, my dad and I rented it. Uh, I remember when I was you know, becoming a cinephile and really getting into movies, I remember uh, I said to my dad, Godfather Part Two, it's got this, 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 you know, it's like almost four hours. And my dad said, let's go. And he took me to the video store and we rented it and we watched it together. Uh, and it has been our Chris, as I said, mo- a million times. Our Christmas tradition was always to see Godfather One and Godfather Two uh, uh, together uh, on Christmas Day. And my dad, oh, wow. we always did that every time I was home for Christmas. Just sat there and watched what f- f- almost six hours of the Godfather uh, because so much of it speaks to our family. As as a family of my my parents were immigrants, and of course, the different characters are, are familiar. Plus, there's such life to these characters steve and especially the new characters we get in godfather part two and the expanse and the hypocrisy of the american dream and i think that's something that my father came to discover and really accept as he got older when he first came to this country he was wide-eyed and had so much belief in it but then experiences he uh he went through as an immigrant uh was was stuff that stories that he passed on down to me when we were alone and watching these films or other films and he would relate his experiences to me and so i feel that connection in the lifeblood of this movie as well so I, I mean, no offense to your family traditions, but Godfather and Godfather Two is not what I would want to be doing on Christmas Day. We're a, look, we're a hardcore family, man. So I can tell you. apparently, well, in addition to being apparently a Roca Christmas tradition, the Godfather Part Two also happens to be a Patreon pick, and I would like to hear why John O'Shafer Cotter wanted us to explore this masterpiece. Hey, Steve and John, this is John O. from Santa Cruz. Thanks so much for all the insight you share on movies. And I suggested Godfather 1 and 2, not just because they're great movies, but also because I was told my mom uh, really loved them. She was Greek and passed away when I was a kid, so I'm not sure exactly what she loved about them. But I get the idea she connected to the authenticity of these films. Not so much the crime parts, of course, but the family elements in the Italian immigrant story. Those pieces speak to me and remind me of my childhood with all my Greek relatives. Anyway, thanks again for all the work y'all do. I can't wait to hear it. So I have, you know, there was tons of pre-production for Godfather 1. I don't have that much pre-production for this, but I'm going to tell you what I I do have, which is that Puzo started writing a sequel script before the movie was even released. Mm -hmm. And the title of that script was The Death of Michael Corleone. Wow. Um. And then, of course, the movie's a huge hit. So Bob Evans goes to Coppola and says, we want to do the sequel. And Coppola says, nah, I'm not interested. Really? (laughs) He turned it down, turned it down cold. Bob Evans' response to that was, that's like you've got the recipe for Coca-Cola and you refuse to make any more bottles. (laughs) And then Coppola says, well, why don't I, I'll produce it. 
and let's hire a new director. And he wanted to hire Martin Scorsese. Oh, man. I did not know that. Wow. Scorsese would have been so interesting. I mean, I don't think, it, I don't think we would have gotten the epic we got, though, but still would have been interesting. No, I mean, look, this is the movie that we wanted, but that would have been an interesting. I, w- I wish we could have parallel universes, mm. you know, and see them both. I mean, they'd be really interesting. A but then Bob Evans said no, and then he said he reluctantly allowed himself to be convinced, but wanted way more artistic control. He wanted total artistic control, which mm-hmm. I don't think he quite got total artistic control, but he got a lot more than he than he had before. And what I wonder, knowing what I've learned about Coppola, was yeah. this all a ploy? In terms of what? In terms of turning it down. Oh, he turned it down in order to achieve more artistic control. Certainly possible. Wouldn't put it past uh coppola at that time with his hubris to do it yeah and the origins were that coppola for years long before the godfather had an idea of making a film that juxtaposed two fathers basically both at the same age of their life intercut because coppola's into these very personal movies you know very poetic movies and the one thing you know we talked about some of the things that was cut out of the godfather book that was good thing in our last episodes but the one thing that had to be cut out that he really genuinely liked was Vito's story of coming to america and becoming the godfather and so that's what clicked he said oh i could tell Vito's story Mm -hmm. and do this idea of juxtaposing two fathers at the same age and that's where this movie comes from can you imagine, Steve, like conceiving that in that, that moment that the, when the light bulb goes off and you go, this is the story. Finally, I found my way in. I'm going to connect these two and see the differences. How Vito is actually, as I said in the first part, uh, the uh, Godfather, one of the parts that said, he is actually the hero of the story, the protagonist. It's Michael that is at times the antagonist within his own story uh, as he goes along. And you see it so evidently as these two stories are told throughout this film, how much more you fall in love with Vito and how much less you care for Michael yeah. by the end of the, of the movie. It is such a tragic juxtaposition of two stories. Um, you ask if I know what that must feel like. And mm. I, I do know what that feels like. Never, I've never come up with anything this good, but I can t- the moment that it clicks mm-hmm. when you're writing, and frequently the experience that I've had is I've written a whole bunch of stuff because I wrote it for various reasons, and then it all comes together mm-hmm. in some way, and it literally feels like magic just happened. Yeah. You know, like it, it's so, and what, what's so weird, I, I don't know if you've had these experiences, is like you have this worldview at one point, and then something something clicks, and now you look at it in a completely different way. Oh, yeah. Of yeah. course. Yeah. That's that experience. And I'm sure it just clicked into place. He writes the script. Mm-hmm. He sends it off to Al Pacino. Al Pacino says, no. <laughs> he says he doesn't like the script. Um, and he doesn't want to do it. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? Like, <laughs> you just got, this movie made you. Yeah. You just, I don't think I want to do it. Did a couple other films since then, and now you're turning it down. And Francis says, "You know what? Fly out to San Francisco. Let's talk about it, and then I will rewrite rewrite it." So Al flies to San Francisco. They talk about it. Coppola says he stayed up three nights straight. You know, lots wow. of coffee, and just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. Handed a new script to Al on Monday after you know the weekend. Al reads it and goes. I'm in. Wow. And Coppola says, I'm really happy that Al did this because the movie got better. 
And I've had that experience too, which is that someone rejects my thing and I'm angry and pissed off. And then I sit down and I make it better. And, and he goes to Al and said, I think when they're in the middle of the shooting, oh no, it's years later. And he said, listen, Al, when you turn down the movie, were you really not going to do it? And I was like, no, of course I was going to do it. I just wanted you to do another pass on the script. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Creative control. How does it feel, Francis? Now turned on you there, guy. So, and Coppola is the one who said, I want it called the Godfather part two. And what's so that I never thought about, there had never been a sequel named with the number like that. Yep. There'd never been a part two till this one. Yeah. So we have Coppola to thank for that. (laughs) Thanks, Frank. So I have to say something that I was wrong. Okay. Um, I speculated when we did our thing on Coppola and continued to mention it as we were in the Godfather. Yeah that Coppola needed to battle to do his best work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He says Godfather 2 was the smoothest, easiest film, one of the smoothest he ever made because he mm-hmm. had so much control. He wasn't battling. What he said, though, he was battling personal demons, but oh. not film problems. Mm-hmm. You know, whether or not what that means, he was battling personal demons, I have no idea. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't having to fight for cast, wasn't having to fight for budgets and locations and all the things he had to fight for in the first Godfather. Yeah. You know, is different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is all my pre-production. All right. Let's <laughs> enter into the world of Godfather 2. And and we start right where we left off. Michael, it's the end of the Godfather movie, yeah. and he's getting the kiss on the hand and becoming the Godfather. Yeah. There are a lot of sequels that start like this right at the end of the previous movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the beginning, Steve, because you hear the music and then immediately pulls you back in, and you see the credits and the black screen and all of that. And then you do see the kiss, but then you linger on the chair, the chair yes. of power the chair that signifies so much, the transition from one generation to the next in controlling a family, and then the title comes up, well, and then boom. And, yeah, and it's the absence of Vito. Yes, yes, very much so. Because Vito is who holds this family together, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Michael is never going to really fill that chair. Right, and it's our yeah. last time revisiting that time period yeah. uh, of The Godfather. So, and then we go to back to Sicily and we get some on-screen information about, it says the Godfather was born Vito Andolini in the town of Corleone. In 1901, his father was murdered for an insult to the local mafia chieftain. And then his older brother, Paolo, swore revenge and disappeared in the hills, leaving Vito the only male heir with his mom at the funeral. You remember in Godfather 1, they go, where's all the men? And they're like, oh, gone to Vendetta. Yeah. Yeah, I think this idea of all the men gone to vendetta is one that we should continually revisit throughout this film. And we hear there's a marching band playing. We see the the coffin. Of course, uh, Carmine Coppola uh, arranged this music. We've got mom and young Vito. They play, uh, you know, a Sicilian sort of version of the Godfather theme. Yeah. And it's all beautifully shot, and we hear gunshots, and everyone scatters. And the way this is filmed is so amazing. They're cowering behind the, the coffin, mom protecting Vito, and we hear that they've killed the brother. They killed Paolo. 
Yeah. And then there's this shot where there's the body out of focus in the foreground and mom runs to him and there's Vito in the background separated with body and mom in the foreground and him separated out in the background. It is a perfect composition. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, you're watching the funeral procession procession from a distance. Then you see this. You hear the screams of that woman that immediately shatters the sadness of this moment to add even more tragedy and sadness to it. Then we switch to her running in the the foley. The sound of her running on the dirt and the rocks just brings the authenticity to it. And yes, then this actress who plays uh, Vito's mom falls to her knees, uh, crying desperately, and cradles young Paolo's head in her hands and you just and just and steve we don't know these people we don't know these actors we haven't and yet that moment is so incredibly powerful because it is attached to vito corleone and also because this actress does a incredible job with the limited amount of screen time that she has well that what's so weird about this movie and, and and this will literally sustain us until the very final moment of the film mm is that the shadow of Vito Corleone and of Marlon Brando hovers over everything. Yeah. Because we're looking at this kid separated out and we're like, oh my God, that's Vito Corleone. Like that's, this is the beginning of his journey. Mm -hmm. Um, And we go to this, you know, fancy house, which of course is the house we were at in Godfather (laughs) one. And here's the thought that I had, because this is, you know, we know, because we know in Godfather one, this is Don Tomasino and Michael is hiding out in Sicily and Don Tomasino comes to him and says, you got to leave. They found out where you are. And I'm like, you know what? If you, if I was going to hide out in a place, I probably shouldn't hide out right near the town with that I took my name from in the same house of the guy that my dad killed, where my <laughs> you know where my mom is killed. Like maybe that's not where I should be hanging out. Yeah, yeah you know. Yeah. <laughs> but that's where we go right now. And beautiful shot as we go, you know, in down the garden path, and there is Don Chichi, who is sipping his drink, and Mom kneels in front of him. And her speech is just heart-wrenching yeah. and great. Yes. Yeah. Do you think she yeah, do you think she really believes this is gonna work? I think she's got no other option. Yeah. And uh, what she does in desperation is the final option, right? And so in this moment, she is going to beg him, you know, like, please spare my son. And I love this moment where he grabs, she grabs uh, Vito and says he is dim-witted, he is slow. So this, to me, tells me that at the beginning of his life, Vito is on the spectrum. He's an introvert, right? He's very much an introvert. He's quiet, he's intelligent, he's thinking, you know, and so uh, he has that aspect to him. And so the mom is so, like, just like, look at him, he's not going to be in any trouble He's just going to work in the town and probably not have an unspectacular life. Please leave him alone, right? Please don't. And he's like, no, I'm not worried. I'm worried about when he gets older. And this is the Don's arrogance. This is yet another Don who doesn't err on the side of forgiveness, understanding that he has put this family under his foot. And if he he knows that, he, uh, you know, not thinking ahead, his men would hear this kid start talking about wanting to kill him. You know, and so instead of having a little benevolence in that moment, having killed the woman's husband and oldest son, he errs on the side of uh, evil. And it is that moment that causes her to finally uh, grab that knife, which I don't know where it came from. Was it in her dress? Was it on the ground? I don't know where she got the knife from and pulls it up to uh, Don Chi Chi's throat. 
I, I think it's so great. I think the choice that Vito is dim-witted, you know, I, it always reminds me of, you know, that Einstein apparently didn't speak until he was six. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it, and it plays so perfectly into the way De Niro is going to play the part later on as he slowly kind of emerges as from this quiet person because yeah. we know he's brilliant. Yes. Because we know Vito from the first movie. So yeah. we know the wheels are turning. And I think the point you made is just so great because I hadn't thought about it that way, but that is exactly what this whole movie is about. You know, because Vito makes these compassionate choices where Don Chichi didn't make those choices that leads to all this death. Yeah. And Michael, frankly, more like Don Chichi. Yes. Sadly you know? so. Sadly yeah. so. Yeah. So mom grabs the Don, has a knife at his throat, tells Vito to run. He gets away from her. They shoot her with a shotgun. <laughs> They had to have a rope on her. That's the only yeah. way you could make someone fly backwards like that. Yeah. Oof. So you have some, you have a line on the actor and they're in a harness and you have some stuntmen off screen and they just yanked her because she flies like five feet back. She does, man. It's pretty scary, but it's believable with a shotgun blast to fly that quickly, that fast uh, backwards. And I love Don Chichi. You know, and I love that uh, desperation in his voice as he's yelling at his men to go after this young nine-year-old kid. You know, and he he takes Christ. off, and then it's nighttime, and the the Don's men are calling out for Vito. No one should hide him, and there's people with guns. It's really scary. Yeah, of course. We're in front of the church and there's church bells. And then the, some people put Vito into a basket on like a mule. And, I, you know, my thought is Moses being put into the into the basket, you know. <laughs> great point. I hadn't thought of that. That's great. Yeah. Um, and, and again, this is right basically under the eyes of the guards searching for him. Any of these people are going to be killed for saving this kid. And the donkey or the mule, whatever it is, goes out and the music rises and then we dissolve. I think this is just a beautiful bit of filmmaking from there to the ship coming into New York Harbor with the Statue of Liberty in the background. They do such a great job with the costume design here, too, Steve, mm. with all these people. You know, we've seen footage of the stuff from that time. We've seen pictures of the stuff from that time, and they just, they're so accurate. There's almost, and there's almost even a sepia tone, uh, kind of a brownish hue to the film that they put on the effect during this time as well. It kind of puts you in the mood of uh, those old pictures. It's great. It, and, and I think because, and it's so funny because, Leave the gun, take the cannoli was right. The Statue of Liberty is in the background. Right. I think the Statue of Liberty and, it, you know, because this movie is about the immigrant experience in yes. so many ways. And as you said, and as you said about your father is the American dream. Mm -hmm. You know, the belief here we are. Can you imagine your little nine year old Vito Corleone all alone coming from this small town, Corleone? And there is this you come to this harbor and with this huge city and this statue it must be unlike anything you've ever seen. I mean, what you put the talk about the thunderbolt that we had in the first yeah. uh, part with uh, Michael getting seeing Apollonia the first time. What it must be like for this kid who's experiencing the world in this way, and all of a sudden thrust onto a ship, and all of a sudden thrust into this massive metropolis. What that experience must have been like for him. And and, and this is what I call you know Hitchcock used that phrase pure cinema. Hmm. I don't know if he would describe this that way, but that's how I feel. It's like this hmm. is there's pure filmmaking this kid never utters a word 
And yet we are so in his in his perspective, we feel so much for him. And, and I love too, that as they see the Statue of Liberty, all the immigrants take their hats off. Yeah, out of respect. You know? Yeah, amazing. And then we're in Ellis Island. Now this was shot in Trieste in a fish market. Mm-hmm. This is before Ellis Island has since been completely, you know, restored and it's a beautiful museum. I don't know if yeah. you've been there. Uh, definitely, no. d- definitely well worth a visit. Okay. Um, uh, Dean Tavalaris, uh, you know, referenced all these old photos from Ellis Island. There are these huge crowds. There's these lines, people coming from everywhere, different clothing, different skin color, obviously different cultures. Vito's getting examined. It, they, they circle, they put a chalk and X on his coat. He's number seven, by the way, which is Coppola's lucky number as a kid. And he puts <laughs> sevens in all of his movies, apparently. Interesting. Okay. And then he's directed to this bench and he's just sitting there. Someone's playing the violin. And I think this is the same age as my son. Oh, wow. Nine years old. Oh, okay. I, my son would not be capable, you know, <laughs> like to go be completely alone on this journey. You have no idea what's going to happen to him. Yeah. Kids are resilient. You never know. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. He, he, he would have to do a lot of growing up, you know. <laughs> um, and well, to uh, be fair. Vito yeah. didn't have much, man. So you it's gotta, true. You got to grow up quick when you don't have much. What is your name? Okay. Come on, son. What is your name? Tuo nome. Vito Andolini from Corleone. Corleone. Vito Corleone. So I, I, I called my mom. She's sort of our family. She is our family historian. <laughs> and That's to great. ask her, and uh, most of my family didn't come through Ellis Island. Mm. Um, most of them came actually before Ellis Island was really the main immigration spot, except for my great grandfather, Max Morris, came through Ellis Island somewhere um, around eight, 1890s is mm. when he came to Ellis Island. His name was Morris, but other members of my family their name was changed so my mom's last name is smith she was susie smith not a very jewish name her name her family name was schmusik from poland oh wow and so when they came through and i'm not sure where they came they might have come through because the ellis island of the west was angel island in san francisco Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they might have come through angel island but their name was changed against their will from schmusik to smith Right. Uh, your family came much later than Ellis Island. Yeah, so yes, guys... much, it's for sure. They, and they kept their name. They didn't have to change their yeah, name. They didn't have to change their name. Uh, but this moment, too, is so interesting, Steve, because it's such a such a brilliant mm-hmm. moment. And I compare this to that Solo moment in Solo, a Star Wars story, right? <laughs> like, in this moment, <laughs> this is how we get to Vito Corleone's name, and it makes so much sense so that later on the film, when he returns back to Italy and does exact the revenge that Don Cheech had been worried about from the beginning, uh, and probably because Don Cheech was an asshole, uh, he gets the, and the name works, and it makes sense, and we go, oh, that's brilliant. Whereas when Solo gets his name, it's some dude who's sitting there, almost like Ellis Island, in that he's like right. trying to get out of a situation and get onto a transport to get onto another place. Who are your people? I don't have people. I'm alone. Um... Solo. That's didn't work at all. This works. This is how you do it versus how you don't do it. And it's so well done. It's funny. I only saw that movie once. I found <laughs> it. You know, I went to a theater by myself. I watched it. I didn't hate it, but I found it so forgettable. Yeah. That now I kind of want to watch it again because I, I, I literally I don't really remember it. You know, well, we, we revisited it a, a few weeks ago on the Jedi way. Laura Kelly and I did. And, and actually, it's 
when you re release the expectations of a Star Wars film, it's actually an enjoyable film to watch. It's not when you remove that pressure, you can just sit back and relax. You might enjoy it even more a second time, possibly. Um, my guess is I would. Um, uh, and Vito's put into quarantine. And, and all of these are, if you look at photographs from Ellis Island and Dean Tavalaris and Gordon Willis, the cinematographer and Coppola all study these photographs. This looks right out of them. Yeah. And the shot, he's alone in this room. Mm. The Statue of Liberty is through the window behind him, mm. which by the way, that's just shot as a reflection. They're still in Trieste. There's not, yeah. They're not near the Statue of Liberty. It's a photograph of the Statue of Liberty. And he sings... Just, it's just a Sicilian folk song, and we have that text on screen. Vito Corleone, Ellis Island, 1901. Yeah, I have to say, Steve, this uh, this moment, the first time I watched this movie after my father had died, it had been a bit after my father died, I just remember just weeping. I remember yeah. pausing it and just weeping it. Weeping because I felt like that kid uh, in that moment. No parents, or no, no father, lost just not knowing what to do. And I just, that, and then having watched the movie with, for the first time without my dad, you know, it was just, uh, uh, without him being alive, rather, it was just a devastating moment, you know, and, and thinking of my father's experience as an immigrant coming to this country. Not that he came as a child, but just that, you know, yeah. just that understanding of it all, you know. So I mean, he I, didn't I speak English that. when he showed up, right? Yeah, right. Nope, dad you know? did not. Nope, dad did not speak English. He had to learn on the fly, for God's sakes. But yeah, and that ex and the singing of the song is also so sweet, too, because how many of us uh, revert to music, even as we get older, as a place to escape into or as a place to kind of change our mood or maybe make us feel better about our day? Music is a great way to... Um, kind of express ourselves or to let ourselves go into and forget our troubles for like four minutes or five minutes if we can. So it was a way of calming Vito. So yeah, he doesn't speak, but that singing lets you know that he does know how to calm himself and take care of himself. This might be a weird thing to say, but mm. I think that text, Vito Corleone, mm. Ellis Island, 1901, with the shot of the kid, is like the most moving on-screen text I can think of. Huh. You know what I mean? Because it's just yeah. like... because. This is the Godfather. I spent this whole movie getting to know this incredible character. And now yeah. I'm seeing this kid yeah. alone with the Statue of Liberty in the background. And it's, I mean, it's like, it's like Superman in the spaceship landing on earth. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Yeah. it's an origin moment, but it's a deeply moving origin moment. Yeah. Uh, well, also, also, Steve, one quick thing. You said that Coppola made these films from a personal point of view. That it's a personal, like these beautiful films. I wonder if Coppola sees himself as Michael and his dad Carmine as Vito. Mm. And there is something he's working about about out about himself. As we know, he's a you know a hardcore control freak during this time in the seventies, trying to create maybe turn his family into a legitimate success. That kind of thing. I wonder if there's things that like you said he's working stuff out. He was going through personal demons. Maybe by telling this story, he's working things out for himself as Michael and for his dad as Carmine, maybe. Well, and also, Vito. I mean, I, like we mentioned when we did his bio, he was in like 22 high schools. Mm -hmm. Like, I am sure there's feelings of, real feelings of failure and of, you know, needing to prove himself. And right. um, there's just so much of Coppola's heart and soul goes into all of this, Yeah, you know? And, and, and by the way, you t mentioned a personal connection. His aunt Caroline was quarantined in a room alone in Ellis mm -hmm. Island, for weeks when she was wow. nine years old. Wow. See, there you go. Wow. Yeah. 
and then we have this slow dissolve. We're going to see lots of these very slow dissolves to a church, and it's 1958, and it's Vito's grandson, Anthony Vito Corleone, in Lake Tahoe in 1958 for his First Communion. Yeah. There's there's going to be a lot of parallels in this film. And, and I noticed... I mean, I knew there were parallels before, but I was really paying attention to them this time. Yeah. And there are a whole bunch of them, and I think they work so well. Because, like, there's always the knock-on sequels of, oh, you're just redoing the same beats of the previous movie. You know, like you watch Die Hard 2 or you watch Beverly Hills Cop 2 or you're oh, yeah, here's that beat. And it's terrible. Right. This is not like that. Because they're all transformed. Yeah. They're parallel, but it's through their contrast that we're getting something. Yeah, And we have our uh, First Communion, which sort of connects to the christening in the previous movie. And now we're at a party in Lake Tahoe. Uh, <laughs> this is a hell of a place, man. <laughs> that it is, my man. That it is. Have, have you been up to Tahoe? No, I've never been to Lake Tahoe, but uh, Lindley has, and she speaks about the possibility of us going up there. So well, her, her the family grew up like in the in the valley up up central California, yeah. right? Yeah, so she yeah. Does, yeah, so it's not far for her, right? Um, I went up a bunch as a kid. I've been there many times. It's absolutely gorgeous. You should totally go. Yeah. Uh, my dad's family grew up to a uh, like a little place called brockway in uh which was sort of you know it's almost like um uh dirty dancing like they would go up every year many years to visit the same place and they might very well have been there in 1958 wow you know because this is that's his era that's when they that's when and my dad would have been 17 18 at that time um so we're at lake tahoe this was shot at the kaiser estate maybe i already said that Mm. um and this is the wedding you know yeah in godfather one Except it's completely different and everything feels different. Yes. Everything feels less traditional. Everything feels less Italian. Everything feels a little more of him, of Michael changing or approaching the world, trying to become more Americanized uh, in his approach while still retaining, of course, connection to his Italian roots, but him Americanizing himself uh, for sure. Well, I think... The wedding in the first movie is a celebration of that family and those people who actually really care about each other. This party is a show. (laughs) It's for the outside to look at them. It's not for mama and Connie and our family. And, and it is the farthest thing from Italian, you know? Yeah. This is white. This is white America. You know, homogenized. Yeah, absolutely. Also, the difference, right? This communion party, all of this is happening in a wide open space. Mm -hmm. uh, And the the water is right there. Uh, The people, the waiters are coming out and giving, you know, refreshments to the police officers who are there monitoring this thing. Uh, Whereas the difference in the first film. Exactly. It's a it's a more quieter place. It's covered by trees. It's more of an insulated celebration. Sonny is threatening the cops and the and the uh, uh, people who are there with with their cameras. Michael is more open. Michael is more showing. You're right. Displaying it. Look, look, I'm just like you. I, I, you know, I'm the American dream, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And it is so it's so cold and not um, not warm, I guess. Well, I'm sure you've been to 
events that were professional for some organization. Yes. That's what this feels like. A really, yeah. really well done one. Sure. You sure. know, I'm sure every appetizer and every glass of champagne is high class and that's a great band. And yeah, but there's nothing human about this thing at all. No, no, you're right. And in comes Connie. Mama. Ooh, here I am. Looking very, very different from how we saw her last. Because <laughs> last time we saw her, she was screaming at Michael for killing her husband. Yeah. And now she is with Troy Donahue <laughs> as her date. <laughs> Who plays Merle Johnson? Here's what I didn't know. Remember, I remember I, we said all those high schools that Coppola went to. Yeah, yeah. One of them was a military academy. He went to it with Troy Donahue. <laughs> they were oh, students that's together. Great. That's great. As for you, Troy Donahue, <laughs> I know what you want to do. Yeah, that's stuff. Greece, ladies and gentlemen. For yeah. those of you who don't know, <laughs> Rizzo. Um, uh, <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in forever. I watched oh, that as a ton as a kid. That's a great. It's great in 4K, man. Uh, my wife played uh, um, Olivia Newton-John's part in high school. <laughs> she was the lead in Greece because she's a singer. Yeah. She um, and now we find Mama, who again looks completely different. She's yeah. in furs, diamonds, and and Mama is not pleased with Connie. I sent the car out to the airport last week to pick you up. She's a week late. And and then I love that Merle calls her ma mama and gives her a kiss. <laughs> and she's so dismissive. Oh, yes. Hi. You, you need to know when you're dating someone how yeah. to when to actually make those moves with their parents. Don't yeah. jump the gun. Yeah. A little wisdom from the cinephiles, especially um, with a traditionalist family like this. Yeah. Where's Michael? I got to talk to him and get a few things straight. And I can't wait online. You go see your kids first. Then worry about waiting in line to see your brother. We have a quick cut to Frank Pantangeli. We'll talk about him more later. Yeah. I love Frank Pantangeli. Me too, man. Yeah. And then up comes uh, Senator Pat Geary. This is G.D. Sprodlin. This speech, he does a perfect phony, but pr he's good at doing this thing, yeah. but it is clearly fake. I have here in my hand the check made out to the university, and it is a magnificent endowment in the name of uh, Anthony Vito Corleone. And what you find out later, when he says their name correctly, is he knows how to say Corleone. He purposely says Vito Corleone as a way to play to his constituents and also uh, to Michael to be like, yeah, this is what I think of your family. It's a nice little, when you watch it in retrospect after you've seen the film, especially the scene coming up a little bit later, you see that he is purposely denigrating them at every opportunity that he can. Well, and what, what he's here for is um, they, they wrote a big check. Yep. You know, yep. To the, they did an endowment. And when you do an endowment to whatever it is that they did, the senator will show up and make a speech because that's what senators do. <laughs> but you're exactly right. He is saying, I don't actually care about you. Yeah. I am only here because you gave us a check. And I mean, just you can watch this section and just watch each actor's performance. Watch mm -hmm. Diane Keaton, watch Al Pacino and all of the awkwardness and phoniness of yeah. what's of getting the picture with the the big check and the you know all of those things is just painful to yeah. watch and he messes up her name on purpose yeah K oh, of course Pat he does. K yeah oh. of course he does 
there's so many great things about Al Pacino. I mean, I, I can't say enough great things about Al Pacino's performance, yeah. but you look at the distance that he goes from the beginning of Godfather one to here. And of course, where we're going to get to in the end, this is only three years later for this actor. Yes. You know, it's yes. like no time. Yeah. That occurred to me as we get to the scene later of him sitting in, in the room with the Senator, Michael looks older. Michael looks more mature, more lived in. He's been doing this for a while. We find out how long it's been later during the dance between Kay and Michael. But like, yeah, he is more in command of his universe and he's doughier. He's a little heavier, uh, Steve. You know, he's, he's just he's kind of um, he's in that maturity, that mature age of man, you know. I, and I think, honestly, so much of it is just his performance. Yes. The way he holds himself, the, yeah. his, the, the look. Yeah. And, and now and, and what we're going to do is we do basically what we did in the first movie, which is we're going to intercut things in the office with things in the party. And yet everything is different. You know, yeah, where this could you could have absolutely been like, oh, they're just doing the first movie over again. But no, it complete it's completely different and still works so well. Yes, it has shades of the first movie, but it's so different in its portrayal of those similar scenes that in your mind it's it's like you're watching it all over again a, a sequence like this well, i was under the impression that you and i would talk alone i trust these men with my life Senator. if i were to ask them to leave it would be an insult <laughs> i love when the center just next well perfectly all right with me but i should tell you that i am a blunt man and i intend to speak very frankly to you maybe more frankly than anyone in my positions ever talked to you before. Uh, and by the way, he did a lot of improv and Coppola loved it. So a bunch oh, yeah. of this is actually improvised. Wow. We hear this thing about they're trying to get this other hotel and there's a gambling yeah. license they need to worry about and the senator has control over it. Let's cut out the bullshit. I don't want to spend any more time here than I have to. You're going to have a license. Price is $250,000 plus a monthly payment of 5% of the gross of all four hotels, Mr. <laughs> and that's the moment where you know he knew how to say his name correctly all along. He purposely didn't. Now, the price for the license is less than $20,000. Am I right? That's right. Now, why would I ever consider paying more than that? And the senator, it's so bla it's so on the money. He yeah. wants a bribe. And then this speech is so... What's what's so funny because we we know who Michael is. Well, we know we know how powerful he is and dangerous. And so when the senator gives this speech, he thinks he has all the power in the room. Yeah. And he says, I don't like your kind of people. I don't like to see you come out to this clean country in oily hair, dressed up in those silk suits, and try to pass yourselves off as decent Americans. I'll do business with you, but the fact is that I despise your masquerade, the dishonest way you pose yourself, yourself and your whole fucking family. Yourself and your whole fucking family. That's the that's that's the extra bit that he didn't need to go to. That's the extra bit that leads to the dead prostitute in the brothel later in the film. That little extra bit, the disgust in his voice. Michael can handle if it's man-to-man, business-to-business. That's no problem. You go after a man's family, that's a whole nother ballgame. You know? And it's mind-blowing how many people forget that in life. 
Uh, well, but, I, and I think there's there's just so much in that speech because first of all, we talked about this idea that at this time, yeah. Italians weren't white. They were really right. a might. We don't think it like at this time. I wasn't white either. Jews weren't white. Mm -hmm. right. You know, there are all sorts of clubs that I was. My family wasn't allowed to go to. I don't know what Brockway was in Tahoe, but may might have very well been all Jews. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know, and they might not. There are lots of places they couldn't go to. You know, and so this is the the white you know, Anglo-Saxon guy saying, we don't want your kind here. And it's also, he is a hundred percent right. Michael is trying to present them as normal white America, not, I mean, this is, a, I mean, imagine if the Senator came to the wedding, you know, a decade earlier. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. a completely different situation. And the other thing is just, man, watch Al Pacino's reaction. Watch Robert Duvall. Oh. Watch these looks going around the room. And remember, Duvall is the one who was there when uh, uh, Waltz said all those uh, racist things about him and then racist things about uh, the Italians that he works for, his family, the family of Italians he, he, he's with, the Corleones. And here he is again. And he is so calm looking left to right. Like he's just like, I've seen this. I've seen this play out before. The thing is, a lot of people think, oh, just holding still or looking a certain way. Al Pacino goes next level even more so with the cold stare that he was already staring at the senator with the second he says yourself and your whole fucking family. It's, he's, he gets even colder if that's possible. It's chilling to see. I mean, the levels of power of Al Pacino in this yeah. movie and frankly, terrifying. I mean, he's just terrifying. Yes. Um, uh, particularly as we get into later scenes. And as you say, the senator is the parallel of Walt, Waltz. Yeah. You know, right. and and we'll get to it, but the dead prostitute is the horse's head. Yes, a uh, great point. And yet, it's also all transformed. Mm -hmm. and, and I love this moment, too, because Michael's response is, Senator, we're both part of the same hypocrisy. Even before I get to the second part of the line. Yeah. Senators and presidents don't have people killed. Right. Now who's being naive? Right. And this, honestly, this proves Michael's point, because the senator just proved himself to be a scumbag. Yeah, he is. He didn't say... You're a mobster. We don't want your. We don't want criminals. I right. will not. I will fight against you. He said, "I'm going to squeeze you." Yeah, there's no difference. He's shaking him down, just Total like he accuses down. the other uh, Michael of shaking down other people. He's shaking down Michael. Yeah, and then, and this is to to your point. We're both part of the same hypocrisy, but never think it applies to my family. And I love the senator. Said, okay, some people have to play their little games. You play yours. Notice by the I didn't see this the first probably 10 times I watched this. Okay. The cannon. Yes. He turns the cannon and points it at Michael. So let's just say that you'll pay me because it's in your interest to pay me. And Michael notices it. Michael oh, yeah. looks down and sees it and he looks at he looks back up at the senator, like, all right. All and right. it's so funny because it's like, you're threatening me? <laughs> yeah. Right. A, you, you don't understand how this works. And then Michael, man, he comes back. My offer is this. Nothing. Not even the fee for the gaming license, which I would appreciate if you would put up personally. And there's a reaction, and he heads out. And as soon as he's out the door, he's super charming with Kay. Yeah. Right back to being the phony senator. I didn't know you were out here. We got to go, honey. Yeah. And now it's just like in the first movie. We're from this dark scene inside out to the party. <laughs> But again, this is not the Italian music. This is this is just kind of big band music. Yeah, big band music. Yes. 
everything about this estate is just beautiful and the boats pulling up and oh, yeah. the deal they made by the way is that they said to the and i think this is the kaiser family as in kaiser permanente that's who's that's whose estate this is yeah and uh the deal they made is everything we build you get to keep so the the band shell on the lake which is gorgeous dean tavalaris built that wow and the kaiser family was very happy that they got to help hold on to it Let's talk about Frank Pantangeli, Michael V. Gazzo. I know! I know, you son of a bitch! You look great! Frankie Five Angels. Oh, yeah. He's... I, I am so happy Clemenza didn't do it. <laughs> and I love Clemenza. Of course, for that but, movie, yes. But I think that there's there's no... I've never seen a performance in a movie like Frank Pantangeli. Yeah. It, it, it's so insane in a movie of this epic scope, this classic uh, film, that you see such exuberance from a character like this who is supposedly running a city. Uh, and he does such a great job with this character. And the voice, everything about him, his look, his, his rhythms. Voice, his, like yeah, his rhythms, yeah. the whole thing. Ah, you know, the reactions to everything. It's incredible. And and so, this is my understanding of what happened. And I okay. and and I know we said it many times. There is the story, yes. And then there is the truth. And I don't know if this is the truth, but this is what Coppola says. They were trying to negotiate with the guy playing Clemenza right up until they were shooting. Yeah, Richard Castellano. Yeah, Richard Castellano. And the and the the sticking point, it, according to Coppola, was not money. The sticking point is that Castellano wanted his girlfriend to write all his lines. Mm -hmm. I just can't believe that just I don't believe that that doesn't make sense to me okay but that's what Coppola says so let me give you the counterpoint okay and, and this is from an article in the New York Post mm -hmm. uh, this gentleman uh, Lou Lemenick interviewed Richard Castellano in 1981 about this situation and he was more than excited to talk about it um, because when he found him he was answering phones at his friend's business. This wow. is what he'd been reduced to uh, because he couldn't find work after. He, he acted in some TV film and then a couple of things and then didn't act again. And he says, when he interviewed Castellano in 1981, he was answering phones at a friend's garage wow. in Gutenberg, New Jersey after working on two <laughs> short-lived TV series, some TV films, and obscure theatrical feature after The Godfather. They talked for five hours on the phone, wow. he said he said um, that according to him, according to him, the original script for part two had his character testify before a con congressional committee against the crime family headed by Marco Corleone. The scene was rewritten for Frank Pantangeli. And he says, Clemenza says, I saw Clemenza, or Castellano says, I saw, this is quote, I saw Clemenza as a teacher. He teaches how to make spaghetti, how to use the gun. Coppola can't tell me. That Clemenza, after years of loyalty to the old man, would go in and testify against organized crime. Not unless you prove to me that he had become a fearful man, that he had become a betrayer. The demands on me were impossible. I had settled on a price, and everybody else's was settled upon mine. Because people don't know, Castellano was the highest paid actor on The Godfather. Everyone else had not had credits Castellano had, and so they paid him higher commensurate to his experience. So Coppola had Clemenza, as he says, as Coppola had me losing weight to play Clemenza as a young man. I was down to 194 pounds. 
Wow. Then I received the script five minutes later, and it had me rolling in at 300 pounds. And he said, the next thing I know, I saw Coppola quoted as saying that I asked for more money than anyone else that I asked to rewrite the script. Once the lie gets out, the lie is told, and it takes. This is what he said. Um, And he said, there was just friction between me and Coppola all during the filming of The First Godfather. He apparently, according to him, he interceded on behalf of cinematographer Gordon Willis on a number of occasions, and then Coppola was pissed off at him and got his revenge when he shot him in the final scene, making him walk up four sets of stairs numerous times for these takes. Castellano said, we shot the scene over and over. He was going to run the beast. Well, I can take it. I got myself up 75 flights of steps, and if he wanted, I could have gone for 100. I was ready. There are a lot of ways to kill an actor. Uh, He said, does it bother me that there hasn't been anything for me? Yes. Not so much because I haven't done anything, but it seems to bother the people I meet. They keep asking, what's the next thing you're going to do? And it begins to take its toll on me. The phone has started to ring again since I got a new agent, and there's interest again. That was in 1981. He died in 1988 at the age of 55 of a heart attack. Um, And there was rumors that he was the nephew of Paul Castellano, who was the Gambino crime family boss who was assassinated in 1985 by John Gotti, but he never confirmed it. He never admitted it. He never confirmed that he might have been a nephew of Paul Castellano. So that's the other point of view. And I'll be honest with you, Steve. I know you're a director. I'm an actor. I side with the actor in this situation. I could see Coppola being a massive dick at this time in the 70s about how he was handling things. One, you just said he battled with Robert Evans and kind of tricked Robert Evans, in essence, to give him more creative control on the set. And maybe one of those things was messing with Castellano because Castellano challenged him all through the filming of The First Godfather. Maybe he didn't want that anymore. And so he found a way to get rid of him in this situation and denigrate the man. Uh, and maybe someday somebody will ask him to go on the record and force him to tell the actual truth of what happened because directors can be like Orson Welles making up things as they go along to save their legacy. And I just, I feel bad for this gentleman because I have felt this way for decades from the story that I heard and reading this interview really changed my mind that maybe there was more to it than we thought. And of course, somewhere in the middle is probably the truth, brother, but maybe he did want to have some lines rewritten in was because he felt that this was a disservice to the character of Clemenza that he would turn uh, state's evidence or testify against the uh, Corleone crime family and he felt that that was a disservice to the character and he had a right to fight for that but in the end maybe Coppola didn't want to deal with that anymore you know? I'm so glad you to- you said all that because honestly that confirms what I felt mm. because I heard this story of which from Coppola saying the guy wanted his girlfriend to rewrite his lines and I'm like that doesn't sound I don't believe that yeah this yeah. sounds much more believable to me yeah. you know that he was fighting for his character I, t- I you know w- whether or not the Coppola was trying to punish him with making him go up the stairs or not I don't know um but I yeah. certainly actually completely agree that I didn't want to see Clemenza turn on Michael. Yeah. Right. I, I would have really, I don't think the movie would have worked as well. I don't think Clemenza would have ever turned on Michael. Not in that way. Nope. Nope. But, but this is why just, you know, Frank Pantangeli's wearing a black armband and yeah. they have a very, very brief moment about Clemenza having a heart attack. And then yeah. that's it for him. By the way, Michael Vigazzo was a teacher at the actor's studio. Yeah. He was a writer. He wrote Hat Full of Rain, which was the, Tony nominated play, and it was really? also a TV play. And you want to know what movie he wrote? What? 
Elvis Presley, King Creole. <laughs> That's awesome. Right? Okay. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and who comes up to talk to Frank but Fredo in an outfit that is just perfect. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> um, and, and then we get a little monologue from 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 Frank. And this is where we sort of hear the... What, where is the Italianist? He says, some kid came up to me in a white jacket. Kid comes up to me in a white jacket, gives me a Ritz cracker and a chopped liver. He says, canapes. I said, canapes in my ass. That's a Ritz cracker and chopped liver. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of the, uh, the line in Goodfellas where he's like, uh, I'm eating... Uh, uh, ketchup with water as spaghetti sauce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, <laughs> and he wants. He's like, "Where's our New York stuff? All our culture is not here." Yeah, and just like Connie, he can't get in to see Mike. Yeah, and it's so funny because the whole nature, even though Mike's having meetings with people just like Vito did, all of Vito's meetings are to help those people. Yeah, it's all about Vito giving. Yes. None of Michael's meetings are about there. It's all about them, people asking for things right. and mostly him saying no. Yeah. yeah. You know? And, and this is the thing we said in the first film is that Vito is not transactional. He's about relationships. Mm -hmm. Michael is not about relationships. No. He is about power. Yes. You will do this because I want you to do this. Yeah. It's the tragedy of Michael. Always. Yeah. Johnny Ola. <laughs> oh. Um, he comes in, he brings oranges from Miami, man. There's a lot of oranges. Yes, there are. <laughs> I, I don't think it's as simple as oranges symbolize death. Although that's what many people talk about. Cause there's lots yes. of times that death's not involved with them, mm -hmm. but they're important there. Anytime oranges are there, something important is happening. And he sent, what does he do right at the beginning? He sends Tom out. Yes. Tom isn't going to sit in with us, Johnny. He only handles specific areas of the family business. Tom? Sure, Mike. Did Tom know he was going to get sent out? No, you can tell clearly he didn't know he was going to send out. Just the, the, the uncomfortable and the way he ushers him out, you know, with because uh, Tom didn't know. So the way he just kind of blatantly says it, it embarrasses Tom. And this, once again, this is Michael's inability to understand that he has to respect other people as much as he wants to get respect. You know, and in that moment to a family member like Tom, there's just this kind of and, and later when he says what he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also think I don't 100 percent believe him. But in that moment, he's so dismissive of Tom. He's so he doesn't mind how careless he is with him and his feelings uh, that it's uh, insulting, to be honest with you. You know, and Coppola said, I didn't like that people loved Michael coming out of the first movie. I wanted them to hate Michael because these are not good people. So he went even more in on showing the. Uh, insult and the disrespect that Michael could have with people around him and how much of an evil person he actually was, regardless of how much you might enjoy his character. Well, and and it's it's real tough. Well, no, I, it's not tough for me to say who Michael t treats the worst. Michael treats Kay the worst. Sure. But, well, no, so they say it again. Michael treats Fredo the worst. <laughs> yeah, right. Let's be real. Yeah. <laughs> he clearly treats Fredo the worst. Yeah. But the Tom stuff is just so painful. It, yeah. It, because it just seems so cruel. And throughout this whole scene, how is it staged? Tom can be seen through the glass on the outside looking in. Yeah. You know, we have a visual statement of the separation between Michael and Tom and yeah. Tom being kept out. 
And what we're hearing about is something about this guy from Miami whose name is Roth, who apparently has bad health, and that there's a deal. One by one, our old friends are gone. Death, natural or not. Prison, deported. Hyman Roth is the only one left because he always made money for his partners. And I don't know if you've mentioned this, but that's Dominic Cianese, who is uh, Uncle Junior in The Sopranos. That's who Johnny Ola is. Oh. That, if you've ever seen The Sopranos, that is uh, Tony's main antagonist throughout the whole uh, series. That is Uncle Junior as a young man. No lie. Look Can I up. tell you something terrible? What's that? I've never watched The Sopranos. Oh! Oh, why? Is there a reason? So I will tell you, I mean, here's the, here, this is the honest reason. Okay. Uh, is I appreciate that. Karen is Italian <laughs> and she was bothered by, like, it was always this, she didn't like all the Italian mobster things. Like, okay. why are all the, rep- and she's from New Jersey, her family's from New Jersey. And right. she's like, why are all the representations of New Jersey Italians in the mob? And so she really <laughs> resisted it. And so we never watched it. And I think, wow. and I we've talked about watching it since. And I really, I know it's, one of the greatest TV shows of all time. Yeah. I've seen scenes. I think I've seen an episode or two, mm-hmm. but I've never watched the show. Wow. Yeah. I-, I can't encourage you enough. It is not what you think. And it deals heavily with therapy. Right. And mental health and uh, all the stuff that's incredible to see in a mafia show or a show about the mob, right. shall I say. Again, I'm going to keep talking about these parallels, but in the first movie, we cut out to the party and we see mom on stage singing this song. And then this old guy comes up and sings this song and it is clearly Italian and it is clearly funny and it is clearly a shared moment of family and tradition. And now we cut out and Frank Pantangeli goes on the stage to get them to play some Italian music. And he wants them to play the t- Tarantella. And he gets the piano guy to start playing it. And he kind of gives the melody line to the clarinet. And it starts off like it's going to be the Tarantella. And no, it's Pop Goes the Weasel. Yep, yep. I find that moment so painful. Yeah, um... Yeah, because Pant- and it also shows you, like Pantangeli is an. Uh, uh, how can I say this? He's a powerful guy, and then he felt he could storm onto the stage and and request. And by the way, Mama Corleone's with him. Yeah, uh, trying to monitor him to make sure he doesn't embarrass himself. But he's like, you know, play this play. He's probably dragging her up there to sing it. When she realizes he's never going to get them to sing it, uh, he or play it rather, she walks off the stage. You see, she's not no longer behind him. And then they start playing, like you said, Pop Goes the Weasel. That just shows you the difference between the first movie and the second movie, where there's no way Vito would have had a band show up that didn't know how to play this Italian traditional song. Uh, and uh, the fact that Michael doesn't care that this band knows how to play the standards, that tells you the difference in the approach there. Here, here's a basic belief of mine, is yeah. that the point of these parties, bar mitzvahs, weddings, whatever they are, yeah, these events are for families to come together in a loving in- environment. That yes. is its point. Yeah, And that is the point of the wedding in the first, even though we're with a mob family, it is a family coming together in a loving environment. And that is part of why we fall, fall in love and associate ourselves with the Corleone family. Yeah, yeah. I, my guess is you have been to weddings or parties like this where the point was to show off or the yeah. point was to 
appease certain things or whatever and it yeah. feels so yucky yes you know yeah like and that's what this is yep and and i was thinking about you know we talked about i think uh maybe it was when we did the the coppola episode or maybe it was in godfather about uh our backgrounds and yeah. strangely enough that our backgrounds were similar in that our families really wanted to assimilate Yes. You know, yeah. I didn't grow up speaking Yiddish. There was no, we didn't keep kosher in my house. There right. was, you know, it was a, even though we were Jewish and I went to temple, it was a very secular, very American version of that. Right. Right. And I think about what Michael is doing is severing the connection with Italian, being Italian. Yes. Yeah. That's what I said earlier. He, that's what he's doing, Steve. And I, I agree with you. Like he is making it very clear that this is the old way. And we have to leave the old way behind in order to embrace the new way. And the new way must be more American, must be more homogenized. Because and, and Kay reminds him in a little bit, you know, you said you would uh, make the Corleone family legitimate in five years, you know. And so this idea uh, to him, removing the traditional connections to the Italian roots is how he finds his way to embracing power in America. You know? I don't know what I wrote down in my notes here. What's that? I wrote it in all caps and I wrote this wedding is K. And what I mean by that <laughs> is it's Michael's perception that yeah. Michael married K because he wanted to marry white America. Yes. Yes. And that's what this, or th not this wedding. It's, oh, I wrote it wrong. Yes. I wrote this wedding is K. I should say this uh, communion party or whatever right. it is. Right. And now we're back to the office and Connie and Troy Donahue have come. <laughs> And oh, this scene is so painful. It really is. Um, For so many reasons, man. Yeah. And what's weird is we're going to have a scene with Connie much later in the movie, yeah. which is, I think, in the same room, which is also really painful. Yes. And she basically wants some money, you know, because they're going to get married and they want to book passage on the Queen Mary or something like that. And the look, the coldness from coming off Michael. The ink on your divorce isn't dry yet and you're getting married. You see your children on weekends. You know, your oldest boy, Victor, was picked up in Reno for some petty theft you don't even know about? Michael! What's happened to Connie? She's uh, become an absentee mother and uh, is running off and probably sleeping around and, you know, working through the grief of the death of her husband by her brothers, or by her brother, rather, uh, and trying to escape the guilt of all of that and the responsibility of all of that. And so she's punishing the family by being aloof and distant and uh, what she says later at the around the table, you know, it'd be true if my father was alive. It's her way of rebelling against being part of Michael's family. It's her way of trying to hurt him. And she says that later, yeah. right? Later in the, in the same, as you said, in the same room, he says, I wanted to hurt you. I wanted you to feel the pain. And that's what she's doing. She's processing this uh, death. And she probably hates her kids for reminding her of the death of her uh, husband who she loved, even though he beat her relentlessly. You know, I, I just go to this. I think that's all exactly right. Mm -hmm. And I just go to this moment of her screaming and attacking Michael at the very end of the last movie. Michael, you lousy bastard. You killed my husband. You waited until Papa died so nobody could stop you. And then you killed him. And I don't think she just believes that Michael killed her husband. I think she knows that Michael killed her husband. Yes. Yes. And I think about like, well, what happened next? I mean, she might've been institutionalized. She might've, right, right. you know, tried to kill herself. She might've serious alcoholism, drug addiction. And like mm -hmm. the, in that world, cause that's like early fifties. Right. Right. So this is seven years after that and well, what she has been through. 
and, and, and Steve, she's apparently gotten married again and divorced again. And so yep. it's like, uh, well, she was widowed the first time, but got got found and got. So she probably went from guy to from different men, and then got with a guy, got married, and 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 then already left him, and is already messing around with uh, with Merle. Uh, it's no, there's no more white American name than Merle. Maybe Chet, <laughs> maybe Chet, but that's a pretty white American name. And so this is her way of rebelling as well that she, you know, she's doing her things in this way. Yeah. And th- and then his next line, which is, "You fly around the world with men who don't care for you and use you like a whore." Oof. It's a tough word. It it re- it's so well. And this is the thing. There's no compassion in Michael. No, no. He's just you. Essentially, your behavior is wrong. You are embarrassing me and embarrassing the family, and I'm going to tell you what you have to do. Yeah, and here's the irony, Steve. When you look at how Sonny treats Connie in the first movie, he is so loving and caring of Connie. He's defensive of Connie. He literally dies because he went to go kick the shit out of Carlo for treating Connie so terribly, whereas Michael is dismissive and judgmental and tough love. It's a different approach. You know, and so whatever you want to say about Santino, maybe he was a bad Don. I still say I could argue that in court. But like the 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 care he had for Connie is there, and Michael too. He, I, mean, I remember Sonny tried to keep Michael out of this as well uh, when Michael wanted to get into it after his father was uh, shot by Salazzo's men. He tried to keep. So Sonny, I think, is more caring than people think. He's just a hothead. So, so um, I, it's funny. I was because I've been editing the last part of the Godfather. Mm. And at the time, cause I was, I was totally thinking about this in this movie. And I actually did say it, I'm coming around to your way of thinking about Sonny. <laughs> um, not that I think he's, nobody is Vito. Like right. no, nobody's, nobody's Vito. Right. But, but really Sonny, I think is a way better Don than Michael, you know, because Michael destroys the family. Yeah. He Sonny might've family more. And this is the difference. Sonny might not have won the war, mm-hmm. you know, because he's just a hothead and he doesn't have Michael's, intelligence or vetoes but he wouldn't have destroyed the family and when sonny goes to beat up carlo or maybe even to kill him his motivation is love yes yeah when michael kills carlo it's vendetta it's revenge yes revenge that's completely different yep and and now he's trying because he's trying to be the head of the family he's like telling connie what to do and her response is you're not my father what do you come to me for i need money and then, man, he he's in this power position, standing over high angle. It's yeah. a dirty over, which means what it means by being dirty is that he's obscuring part of her face. So an over the shoulder, normally you'd see some of my shoulders, some of my face, and see your face. Right. But if I obscure some of your face, we're in a dirty. And that's a more powerful position. You know, because it's scary where he is. Mm-hmm. He puts his hand under his her chin, which yeah. is just so in this situation horrible yeah it's dismissive as hell yeah i want to be reasonable with you now why don't you stay here with us or the family you can live here on the estate with your kids you won't be deprived of anything you can have everything you want i want to focus on the word reasonable Mm -hmm. and this is why over and over again what does Vito say i'm going to reason with them yeah and what Vito means by reason frequently is we're going to make we're going to come to an agreement Mm-hmm. we're going to have a conversation. Like when he goes and reasons with Barzini and Tatalia, they actually come to a compromise. Yeah. Michael's not coming to a compromise. When he's saying, I want to be reasonable with you, he's saying, I want you to do exactly what I'm going to tell you to do. Right. That's different. Yeah, absolutely different, man. <laughs> um, 
And then, and the but we should say the lighting is is beautiful. The shadows are incredible. And then he says, "If you don't listen to me, marry this man." And there's a long pause. You'll disappoint me. Mm. You had a reaction to that sentence because my, you Michael deals with you in stages. And you see this here. This is a very great example of it, right? Same thing when he dealt with the senator, right? He was there and is like, all right, let's have a conversation. I think Michael was ready to have a fair conversation with the senator. Then the senator mispronounced his name in public and his son's name. Then he goes back into the office and the senator immediately is like, uh, you know, I'm going to speak to you as bluntly, as frankly, as maybe you've not heard before. And then he and says all these things and insults his family. And that's when Michael goes into nuclear mode, which is, I'm going to pay you nothing. In fact, I'm a, I, I appreciate if you paid me to take over this hotel, right? And this is the way he operates. If you treat Michael with respect from the beginning, he will negotiate with you in good faith. If you disrespect Michael and not understand how the situation is going, he will go to the nuclear option. And I think him in that moment, you disappoint me, it's almost a life-threatening situation. And that's scary to think about him saying that to his own family and we do find out obviously for those who've seen the movie i hope to god you're not listening to us and you haven't seen the movie what he how far he's willing to go um when that betrayal happens you know by the way did you see on speaking on twitter there are a bunch of people who are listening to us who haven't seen who hadn't seen Godfather. i know what the hell people but i appreciate it thank you so but much thank for you for thank you for listening <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, yeah, Michael has no. There's no nuance. It's 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 pretty much. Yeah. Do what I say, or I'm going to destroy you. Yeah. You know. There's, there's not a lot of. We can we can come to an agreement. Yeah. Uh, it's night. This party's going on a long time. You know. <laughs> yes, it is. The band's still playing, and there's a toast with the family. And I haven't mentioned Fredo's wife, oh. who is clearly not Italian, and that's Mariana Hill. Yeah. And they give a toast and she asks, you know, what it means. And it means, you know, happy for a hundred years. It'd be true if my father were alive. Yeah. Strong statement there by Connie. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And that's, Frankie makes a toast. Yeah. And there's a great little exchange there where Merle meets Fredo's wife because she pretty much turns the flirt on. And yep. uh, he kind of, you know, kind of reciprocates it a little bit. And uh, you see Robert Duvall and uh, Mama Corleone. Those, those two, basically saying they're peas of the same pod, these two disgusting people and what have you. They probably sleep with each other and, and what have you. So it's just like that moment, too. And, and, and Frankie, who's been drinking, spills a drink and <sighs> says, you know, with all respect, I didn't come here to eat dinner. Yeah. And again, I went low contrast. What are we contrasting this to? I contrast him to Luca Brazzi. I'm interested. Luca Brazzi at the wedding is like, oh, he was so happy to be invited and he wants to see you, but he wasn't on the schedule. Yeah. And the Don makes time to see Luca Brazzi before he joins the party. Yeah. Whereas Michael keeps Frankie waiting. Again, it's all different. Yep. Agreed. Now Fredo's wife is dancing. <laughs> if you call it that, sure. <laughs> It is so, this is so horrible because she's all over the guy. Yeah. Um, and Fredo's standing there watching and Mike is seeing it and whispers to one of the guys and Fredo goes to kind of pull her away because she's obviously drunk and obviously embarrassing everybody. What's the matter? I just, I just want to dance. Dancing is one thing. You're falling all over the floor. Oh, I know what's the matter with you. You're just jealous because he's a real man. 
I mean, this is terrible. It's just terrible. It's emasculating. And it just yeah. it furthers Fredo's emasculation in this series, right? Even his own, the woman he's chosen to marry emasculates him in public in front of his own family. She's not even afraid to do it in front of his own family. He threatens to hit her. Um, and she just goes off. You could have um, your own mama. Yeah, and, and says, you know, you know, talks about Dagos and they're crazy when it comes to their wives. And yeah. and then one of one of the goons, one of the soldiers comes up to Fredo and says, yeah. Michael says, if you can't take care of this, I have to. Yeah, that's Rocco. That's Rocco. Oh, it is Rocco. Okay. Yeah. And there's a pause. And Fredo says, you better. Yeah. And Rocco takes her away. And when she when he grabs her, she says, Rocco, what are you doing? And yanks her away. You know, oh, does she say Rocco? Yeah, she says Rocco when she's yanking him away. I, I mean, and, I, I watch this with my headphones on, so maybe there's occasional things I hear as I'm, I'm watching. Well, what's, what's funny, by the way, because I watched it with subtitles or with closed captions on, is yeah. there are things, lines that are inaudible in the movie that they caption that you so you can know what people are saying. Right. Um, yeah, that whole sequence is terrible. <laughs> I can't control it, Mikey. You're my brother, Fredo. You don't have to apologize to me. He's caring, at least to Fredo in that moment. Yeah. And we contrast that with where their relationship is going to go. Yeah. You're my brother. You don't have to apologize to me. And then we go to a place where there is no apology that's going to be enough. Finally, Frank Pantangeli gets his meeting. Clemenza promised the Rosado brothers three territories in the Bronx after he died. You took over and you didn't give it to them. And what we hear is there's the conflict with the Rosado brothers and that there's they thought that Clemenza had promised them a territory and Frank isn't giving it to them and they feel cheated. And you're sitting high up in the Sierra Mountains and you're drinking, uh, what's he drinking? Champagne. Champagne, champagne cocktails. And you're passing judgment on how I run my family. Tua familia. Ancora pote il nome Corleone. Your family's still called Corleone, and you'll run it like a Corleone. I'm on it, me, and no manja car, no manja Las Vegas. My family doesn't eat here, doesn't eat in Las Vegas, and doesn't eat in Miami with Hyman Roth. No manja with Hyman Roth. Yeah, I love it. That's right. Um, well, and this is the thing. So now we had Johnny Ola come in and talk about some deal with Hyman Roth, and he yeah. always makes money for his partners. And now we have Frank say, basically, you've betrayed us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like my family doesn't make deals with Hyman Roth. This is the only person that stands up to Michael in a way that yeah. he accepts, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he has respect for him too because he took over the old the old family's uh, um kingdom. Yeah. And he comes over and this is where he does negotiate. He does kind of mm-hmm. soften it. He comes over, he sits next to him and he says, "You're a good old man. I like you." You were loyal to my father for years. And we talk about the Rosado brothers. They spit right in my face. All because they're backed up by that Jew in Miami. I know. That's why I don't want him touched. You don't want him touched? No. I want you to be fair with him. And he's asking for something big that Frank doesn't want to do. Right. Because the Rosado brothers are bad guys. And they're, they've disrespected him. I want to earn my family without you on my back. And I want those Rosado brothers dead. No. Morte. Now I have business that's important with Hyman Roth. I don't want it disturbed. And and what does Frank say? He says, then you give your loyalty to a Jew before <laughs> your own blood. And what we find out is that Vito did business with Hyman Roth. This has yeah. obviously been going on a long time. And Frankie's like, yeah, but Vito didn't trust him. You never trusted him. Um, 
and and he says you'll have to excuse me i'm tired and i'm a little drunk and i want everybody here to know there's not going to be no trouble for me Don Corleon. and he bows <laughs> and there's cheech open the door and he makes an exit yeah but mike doesn't threaten him no he could have and near mm -hmm. Al, Al's behind the bar. Al near is behind the bar, and he's kind of mm -hmm. tired, exhausted. Great body language by him, just leaning on the bar. We've all been there at the end of a party when we're laying on the table, <laughs> on the bar, or whatever, just for because we're tired. And he says, you "Want me to? Uh, you know, want me to kick him out, or want me to get him?" Away? He's like, "Ah, oh, nah, let him go back to New York. The old man just had too much wine." So in that moment, there is Michael has a benevolent uh, streak in him. He just doesn't give it to everybody and with Pentangeli he has a soft spot for the people who worked for his father you know and so he has that for Pentangeli and he would have that for Clemenza if it had been Richard Castellano for sure he but he says let him go back to New York I've already made my plans right yeah because he's not Which, what's weird about that line is it's sort of he doesn't matter I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do yeah you know so what's going to happen later on, you know, we spoil everything and hopefully you've watched this film is that the Rosado brothers are going to attempt to kill Frank Pantangeli. Mm. And the guy who tries to kill him, who's Danny Aiello, by the way, says uh, Michael Corleone says his best, sends yeah. his best because they want Frank to believe that this came from Michael Corleone. And then later on, we say that it came from Hyman Roth and there's a thing and we're going to get into all of this, but Michael's playing kind of both sides. He's saying to Hyman, I, I, I know that Frank Pantangeli is against me. And he says to Frank, I know that Hyman Roth is against me. And I think the movie wants you to conclude that it is Hyman Roth who wanted to have Frank Pantangeli killed, but I don't think it is a hundred percent sure yeah. that it's yeah, not yeah. Michael. I don't yeah. know. I don't think he is, which is why he testifies. That's well, why I think Frank, he Frank believes, Frank definitely believes it's Michael. Right, right. But is it Michael? Is it Hyman Roth? Is it both of them? Who really wanted Frank Pantangeli killed? I think it's Hyman Roth, not Michael. I think Michael I think that's what the movie is saying. Yeah. But I, I that's what I kind of think too. But I actually yeah. think this is not really clear. Yeah. Um, but we'll get into that more. He's out dancing with Kay. And the first thing he asks, he says, how's the baby? because she's pregnant and then he says and this is the sicilian thing this goes back to luca brazzi saying and i hope your first child will be a masculine child is right. he says does it feel like a boy <laughs> and she says yes i think so and then we get to this thing you said before in five years the corleone family will be completely legitimate that was seven years ago it's later we hear the theme it's bedtime michael comes to bed takes off his jacket there's a nice drawing that's a gift from his son it's like do you like it yes no and then uh Kay says michael why are the drapes open <laughs> and it's like when uh fabrizio runs away from the car mm -hmm. you know what i mean mm -hmm. and michael realizes what's about to happen right before it happens and he yeah. drops down and <laughs> and Kay goes down and michael covers her it's sh totally shocking just oh, yeah. out of nowhere. Absolutely, yeah. And she's not hit. And then, and we've seen that there were guards before, but now we see, I mean, this is like guarding the president. I mean, they have a, they are well practiced on what they need to do. Spotlights and 
radios. And, and what does Michael say? Keep them alive. We'll try. Rocco! Alive! Rocco! Alive! Yeah. And we're inside in case, you know, with the children, families all huddled together in a room. Michael's in there smoking and pacing. And there is a look from Diane Keaton that is... I mean, she just said, you promised me yeah. in five years you'd be legitimate. And we're outside, more guns, more shirt searchlights. And Michael is alone in the room. And this is the scene you were talking about with Tom. Yeah. There's a lot I can't tell you, Tom. I know that's upset you in the past. Yeah. Again, this is the thing that Vito did that Michael's never did, is Vito was sensitive to other people's emotional process. Yeah. You felt it was because of some lack of trust or confidence. But it's, it's because I admire you and I love you. But I kept things secret from you. That's why at this moment you're the only one I can completely trust. So you said a while ago that you're not sure whether Michael's being sincere in the scene. Is that what you were yeah. saying earlier? Yeah, because... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Steve. Well, no, me. that's what I'm... I, I keep going back and forth about yeah. this scene. When I was younger, I used to watch it, and I thought it was a sweet scene that Michael, you know, tell essentially hands control of the family over to Tom. But I also think it's a way of him using Tom by playing to what Tom has always wanted, which is Michael's love, Michael's approval, Michael's acceptance. And we don't know, Steve. We have no scenes with Tom and Michael, like, right. in the past, you know, as teenagers or as 20-year-olds having conversations about life. We don't know if Michael was at times not that warm with Tom uh, as Tom would have liked. Uh, and maybe Tom is, you know, because Tom is brought in to the family. He is not born into the family. So he constantly feels like an outsider. So being accepted by members of the family is important to him. Uh, and so when, when Michael plays to that, when he says that to Tom, I don't know if I 100% believe Michael's, actual affection for him because i don't know if he's fully capable of it to be honest with you and so then when he when when i'm looking at it this time around i thought to myself oh he's just playing on the thing that tom needs the most just like everybody else like you said he's a transactional person what can i get from you to achieve the goals that i want to achieve not what not what can i do to get you on my team so we can achieve the goals i want to achieve together that's how Vito was michael's not like that it's such an odd scene because it's very different from everything else. I do think that Michael is shaken yes, because true. of the attack. I, so I think some of that emotion is is real. Yeah, It really is the most sort of open he seems in yeah. the whole film. I I don't know if it's true. <laughs> I don't know if Michael's capable of trusting anybody. Yeah. Fredo, uh, he's got a good heart. But he's weak and he's stupid. Look, look how he speaks about his own brother. He's yeah. weak and he's stupid to his own brother about his own brother. It's crazy. They treat Fredo so terrible. Yeah. And, and, and it's like, yeah, okay, he might not be as strong or as smart as Michael, but you don't have to right. treat him like a nothing, which they right. do. Tom, you're my brother. And there is a reaction. Mm -hmm. And I, Duval's so great. And he says, oh. Always wanted to be thought of as a brother by you, like a real brother. Here's what I was thinking about, and you kind of touched upon it. Mm. Tom was brought into this family by Sonny. So that's the closest relationship. 
And then he really comes under the wing of Vito. Vito becomes his real father. Mm -hmm. And I think he works really, really closely with Vito for a really long time. Yeah. And I think more than anybody else in the family, Tom was the one who was learning at the feet of Vito Corleone. Right. You know, Michael, that was Michael later after, yeah. after he comes back from Sicily. But before that, it was Tom. And then the person he was closest to in the family gets killed. Yeah. And then his mentor, his father figure dies. And now he's left. He's kind of in the family. But the guy that's left, Michael, mm -hmm. that's not a close relationship. How has it felt for Tom being part of this? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. what connections does he have? Yeah. Whereas other people do not affect Tom outside of the family, inside of the family, it can be quite sensitive about what his place is in it and how people respect or love him in that family and then the, i this is just so out of nowhere for me and he says and that's why you're going to take over you're going to be the don yeah. that's like what mm -hmm. and i don't even really understand it. i don't even think it's really true i think he's really saying like look you're going to be in charge while i go to cuba he's not really yeah. saying you're going to be the don right right what i think has happened has happened i'm going to leave here tonight I give you complete power, Tom, over Fredo and his men, Rocco, Neri, everyone. Oh, complete power over my brother. That's a lot. <laughs> but then this is great. He says, I'm trusting you with the lives of my wife and my children and the future of this family. And if it gets these guys, do you think we'll be able to find out who's back away from this? I'm catch Unless I'm very wrong, they're dead already. They're killed by somebody close to us. Which is exactly what happens. Yeah. One thing I learned from Bob was to try to think as people around you think. Now, on that basis, anything's possible. What's he saying here? What What is he telling to Tom? Uh, it's weird, because I was thinking about it, too, as he was saying it. But what does it mean to think how others think anything is possible? I think maybe this is a moment. As you say, he's unsettled. You know how we all are after a trauma, certainly when our lives have been threatened by gunfire, our minds can go in many different directions. Maybe in this moment, and I was picking this up as I was watching it this time around, where are the moments where Michael or Al Pacino as an actor, and I'm studying him as an actor, right? I always watch films as an actor, watching other actors. Right. Where is Al Pacino throwing this level that he might suspect his brother? That mm. he might suspect a family member, Connie maybe even, who's been, you know, kind of very derisive towards Michael or angry towards Michael. Where is his mind going? And in that moment, it was like he says, anything is possible. It's basically saying anybody could be in play. And even later on, Michael accuses Tom yeah. of betraying him later on. So Michael is so paranoid that this is his existence all the time. He trusts no one, not even family. And that's uh, unfortunate. And he does proved to be right but i also think michael corleone bears a lot of responsibility for what Absolutely. fredo does and the film does not address that concretely enough well and it's like frank pantangeli just did this just really didn't uh it's not that he didn't show him respect he did not agree to do what michael wanted him to do he walked out saying don corleone and bowed in this very sarcastic way well he did say there'll be no trouble from me so he was kind of agreeing, but not, but in a sarcastic way. Yeah, yeah. that's what I mean. It's like he didn't, he didn't say, 
Mike, I promise there'll be no trouble for me. He said it in this way that sort of, wait, are you really saying that? Yeah. We yeah. just had a scene with the senator. We just had all this, you know, conflict with Connie. Um, and and so I'm going, he knows that he's been betrayed. And then what's going to happen? We go outside. And after seeing Fredo's wife freaking out, rightly so, we mm -hmm. found that, yes, the guys have been killed. The people who tried to uh, assassinate them are dead, um, which proves Michael's point that someone inside who tried to kill him killed these guys. Yeah. Yeah. I literally have no idea who killed these guys <laughs> because we know Fredo has betrayed him. Yeah. But all he did, he sold out some information. We think. Yeah. Fredo did not kill these guys. Nope. Nope. Who killed them? I wonder. It's a Is good Johnny question. Ola still around? Or I don't jo get the impression he's not he's not or, there now. Or another person on Michael's staff? Because remember, because remember, right after this, uh, Steve, we get that weird older dude in the all black and the black hat yeah. who is never introduced to us. We never see a meeting or nothing. He's just all of a sudden there, and part of the family, or at least part of the protection team that is is taking care of Michael. So might even Michael maybe doesn't even trust Rocco or Al Neri or anybody to protect him. He found someone new, you know. And so well, that's and this is this thing that's never addressed, you know. No, it's never addressed. And right. it relates to me to if what I think has happened has happened. Mm. And my pop told me to see other things through the way other people thought. And everyone thinks of this as a business. Yeah. Like, okay, so what Michael's obviously calculated something, but yeah. I don't understand what it is. And, and that's it, that's what's so funny about this film is there's some parts of it that are just ambiguous that we're just not going to understand. Yeah. Um, but Mike walks into his kid's bedroom and sits down and there's Anthony. Anthony, everything's going to be all right. Try to sleep. I do think he loves his kids. Yes, true. I think I don't think he is a good father. Yeah. <laughs> Far from it. But I do think he loves his kids. And this. This line, again, it's just a capper on this whole horrible party. He says, did you like your party? And he doesn't say, yeah, Dad, it was a great party. He says, I got lots of presents. And he says, did you like the presents? And he doesn't say, they're awesome presents. He says, I didn't know the people who gave them to me. Hmm. Friends. No, they're not friends. That's the whole point. Yeah. At the yeah. wedding, that was family and friends. Right, right. right. This is people that came to pay tribute to the king and right. give presents to his kid. Right. I think I don't know the people who gave them to me is like everything Michael's doing wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then this moment, man, I don't know. It really hit me this time. Maybe this might be really because I'm a father. Anthony, I'm going to be leaving very early tomorrow. Will you take me? No, I can't, Anthony. Why do you have to go? And then I could help you. Which, of course, in Godfather Three, that doesn't happen. One of the many issues I have with that movie. But yeah, the, the, but the, the kid is desperately trying to yeah. connect with his father. Right, right. Because his father is so busy building this empire that he doesn't spend enough time with his kids. Right. And what did Vito say to Sonny? It's oh, man. Literally in my notes right here. You spend time with your family. Sure I do. Good. Because a man that doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. And that matters. And even Michael didn't learn that lesson. You know, and we see the, the fruits of that in Godfather 3. Although it's not a perfect film, 
I got what Coppola was trying to go for. It could have been better done maybe, but like this moment is really poignant when you see later when Michael breaks us. Throughout this film, Michael has these moments of vulnerability or breaks in his character, but he never learns the lessons. He's constantly asking these questions, but the answers that come back to him are not the answers he wants. So I don't know why he asks these asks these questions if he doesn't actually want to change the situation, you know? And in the process, loses his wife, loses his kids, almost loses his empire, loses his brother. Uh, so there's so much throughout, and possibly loses Tom as well. There's so much throughout the steps that he takes that turns him into a solitary, hated individual by the last uh, moment of the movie. I think you just so made this click for me hmm. because I've been struggling with this this thing the whole time, which is 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 Michael just this cold, merciless person, hmm. or does he have real love? And I think, and it's in this scene, and I think in the scene with Tom as well. Hmm. I think he's he does he has the, some feelings. But he can't, he doesn't know how to act. He doesn't, right. all he knows how to be, all he knows how to use is power. Mm -hmm. All he knows how to use is aggression and fear. And and he's such a perfectionist in like, right. this is, he has this vision of what it's, I mean, this is the classic American dream or the fallacy of the American dream is like, yeah. if I can only have this if I can have the beautiful wife and the house and the money and the job and the prestige and the fame and all that stuff, then I will be happy. Right. And then my family will be happy. I must give my kids the life and the wealth and the opportunity, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then my, and then I am a good father. And yeah, that is not true. It's not that success or, you know, striving to succeed in business or any of those things are bad in and of themselves. Yeah. But the love that is in the wedding scene is not in this party. No. And his uh, son doesn't know who gave him the presents. Right. And Steve, is he a sociopath? Is he a psychopath? I think sociopath is in play. This, yeah. I, this idea of he sees human beings as people he can use or people he can, or he plays the game of looking like a certain thing, the veneer of yeah. what he's supposed to be, um, and doesn't actually have that connection with his family, which again is the problem I have with Godfather 3. It's so inconsistent to what Michael Corleone only was to have him be this boisterous, jovial, broken-hearted man in three because that's not who michael would have ended up as it just isn't and 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 coppola i'm not coppola i've not achieved anything close to what coppola's achieved but i can't analyze a movie and the character beats here and connect that to three and this is what's so you know interesting to me as i watch two this is the tragedy of michael he cannot connect in the way that his father could and he thinks playing at it will help him get to that point but it never does he married Kay for yes he cared about her but i also think he married Kay for uh to ingratiate himself as you as we've said before to white america to make him more american he he's, this whole scene is how to be more american in the celebration he uses his son his son's bar or communion rather as an excuse to have all these people pay fealty to him 
and offer and uh, as you said offer up offerings to the king for his son everything is presented in a way instead of celebrating his son right instead of a party for his son the whole show, the whole time, we never see him get up on that stage, my Steve, and give a speech, a heartfelt speech about his son, how much he loves his son, how proud he is of his son, how much his son worked to become to get his first communion. None of that is there in this party. It, 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 he never asked his son, like, what kind of cake do you want? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like yeah. when I had, uh, uh, oh, by the way, let me just say, Francis Ford Coppola has never won a belt in the Schmodown. Let's be real <laughs> clear about that. Um, I, I would kick that old man's ass. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I had my bar mitzvah, my parents asked me, what do I want at the party? Yeah. And I said, I like tacos. And my parents had, had a taco cart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a taco cart at my bar mitzvah party. The classic traditional Jewish taco cart. <laughs> um like there's nothing in it for the kid. And and I think I think um you know came up in Godfather One is that there is this weird connection between Michael Corleone and Charles Foster Kane. Is yeah. that he wants love, he doesn't right. know how to give love. Right. He doesn't understand he, you know, we're gonna have a scene with mom later on of like, how did Pop do it? You know, and it's like, well, Pop loved his family. Right. The whole core, and this is what we're going to see, because this is exactly where we're going to go, is we're going to have this super slow dissolve from Michael and Anthony with Michael on the left side of frame. Yeah. And we're, it's very much like the Jed Leland dissolves in Citizen Kane. And I'm sure mm. they use the same technique, which mm. is on set, you lower the light on one side, and that allows the image of the other where there's it's dark on the left on one side and dark on the right and light on the left on the other side. Yeah. And that allows you to do this slow dissolve that is a superimposition so that on the right, you know, Robert De Niro, Vito Corleone emerges and it says New York, Vito Corleone, New York City, 1917. Yeah. And we're going to see the contrast. And wh- what is he looking at? He's looking at Sonny in the crib, you know, and yeah. there's that slow dissolve to Santino. And you can see just in this moment and we're going to talk a lot about de niro's performance which is to me astounding Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the deep and profound love he has for his children and for his wife michael has nothing like that yeah this is as good a place as any to end what will be i don't know how many parts of our exploration (laughs) of godfather 2 um, but we would love to hear what you think, even just about this first section. So visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for the cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show at all the usual places. Leave your comments on iTunes and your reviews. It makes a huge difference. Every one of those reviews. In fact, John, we're almost mm. at a thousand five-star reviews. Wow. That's great. That? So if you get a few more of those and we would get over the top, that'd be pretty yeah. amazing. Um as always, if you want to watch or stream Godfather 2, you can do it at cinephiles.net. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can follow me on Twitter at SR Morris, Instagram SR Morris1. John, what about you? You can always follow me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. And please head on over to my YouTube channel as well, youtube.com slash John Roca says. A uh, number of content, uh, a lot of content going on there. Steve's been on some of it as well. So come and enjoy all the things we're doing there. And Steve, um, 
I'm looking forward to seeing what people think. And I've already taken out odds in Vegas. This will be a five-parter. So uh, <laughs> we shall see. We shall see how it goes along. But uh, they people have been nothing but incredibly complimentary about The Godfather uh, that we did, the three-part that we did on The Godfather. So I'm, I think we're going to do an even better job on Godfather Part 2 if that's possible. Well, there's certainly a lot of a lot to dig into here. Yeah. And I can't wait to meet you again in a couple of days to record Act 2 of part two of <laughs> The Godfather.